Welcome to Breaking the Underdog Curse for Chiropractors. I'm your host, Dr. Don McDonald, author of the best-selling book, The Underdog Curse. We give vitalistic chiropractors a chance to learn from the best around the world, discovering how they overcame their challenges and achieved success. In order for chiropractic to thrive, we must have thriving chiropractors. Now listen up, it's time to crush the curse. Hello, podcast listeners, especially the ones in Australia and New Zealand. Just a reminder, again, the Shift Unplugged is our, our intimate seminar. We have a, have a closed group of people where we really try to break through different challenges in your practice to take it to the next level. We just finished one in Phoenix and had tons of great feedback. It's June 1st in Kingscliff, just outside the Gold Coast. You can get all the information at www.trueconceptseminars.com and register before the early bird is done. And we hope to see you in Kingscliff, June 1st. Enjoy the podcast. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Breaking the Underdog Curse for Chiropractors. This is Dr. Don McDonald, your host. And today I'm heading to Scotland to my brother from another mother, <laughs> Dr. Donald Francis. He, uh, he's been on the podcast before and, uh, we had his, uh, you know, his chiropractic journey and his story. So if you want to go back to www.drdonmcdonald.com and go back and look up his first episode, you can uh, listen to that one first, because this is, this is going to be an extra add on because, uh, Donald's been doing a lot of work, um, in, in the realms of technique. And so I just wanted to kind of, you know, dive a little bit deeper into his journey through the chiropractic technique and and how he kind of molded his certainty in chiropractic and I think it would be uh, you know super beneficial for the people out there in underdog nation so Donald welcome to the podcast hi hi Don thanks for having me again um, it's nice to be back yes good so you mustn't have sucked too bad the first time <laughs> yeah well I've listened to I've listened to every single podcast I think for about probably for about a year and then I'm, I'm, I'm three quarters of the way through your back catalog so we're getting there that's good yeah so it's only i think there's 84 episodes so there you go here you're <laughs> probably on a, i'm probably on about 65 oh there you go it's a dedicated listener i appreciate it so <laughs> so well it, it fills the journeys i have to say yeah yeah when you're sitting in the car or walking around it's always nice Absolutely, to kind of yeah. kind of nice to kind of Fill your mind, and then periodically you can still put the music on and sing. But it's nice to kind of hear hear some uh, information to get you inspired. So, so I, what I wanted to do is I wanted to kind of pick up um, kind of part of your journey of like you graduated from Palmer and then you headed out to Scotland. And I just wanted to tell you uh, just to, to tell the listeners a little bit about um, like when you're at school, what kind of techniques did you learn in school? And and when you first started practice, kind of what did you start with? And then we'll kind of go through your evolution of, of your chiropractic technique. <clears throat> sure. So just, um, so let's look at Palmer. When I, I still think Palmer is probably a pretty good school, but um, I, I think like a lot of schools, their numbers are down right now because nobody's really sure what they stand for. You know, those schools that stand for something, um, even if it, you know, even if it's good solid MSK, are probably <laughs> standing for something. Whereas those that are a bit wishy-washy, you know, why, right. why would you go there? Um, right. So I, I, thought, I thought the jewel and the crown of Palmer when I was there was the technique department, actually. Yeah. Um, even more so than the clinic. And, and the, I don't know if you, the, 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 new, the new clinic at Palmer is amazing. But um, the jewel and the crown, crown was the technique department. And, you know, you learned a Gonstead pretty solidly. Um, you know, somebody who's a very solid 
um, Gonstead practitioner would, would, would might think Palmer Gonstead was a little weak, but I, I thought, you know, I thought it was a pretty thorough Gonstead education. Um, everybody learned Palmer Diversified, mm-hmm. and um, we learned Toggle Recoil, which I still use a lot of Toggle Recoil, actually. Um, I, don't, I don't use x-ray analysis, so, you know, the upper cervical specific terrorists will probably jump all over me and say, how am I giving a specific adjustment? <laughs> <laughs> and I'll say the an- the answers with a lot of intention. But um, yes. um and then um we learned a lot of Thompson as well and mm-hmm. knee chest, some knee chest stuff. Anyway, that was the core curriculum. And then Palmer literally had a, a, you know an, an abundance of riches in terms of add-ons and they were they were cheap. I think they were about $250 a trimester. Yeah. So I had about six or seven of those. Um I was the guy who got me into chiropractic was an SOT guy called John Howard. And I certainly thought for a lot of the time going through Palmer that I was going to work for him. So I did spend quite a lot of time um, learning or trying to get uh, SOT down. And I did some activator. And I spent a lot of time also in the upper cervical specific world, Uh, in particular, uh, toggle and uh, a technique called Atlas Orthogonal which was uh, designed and brought on by Roy Sweat. Yeah. And that sort of has its lineage coming through Toggle. And then I can't remember the... Anyway, there was some branches off Toggle, one of which has ended up as Nuka, which is probably one of the more popular upper cervical um, techniques. I just can't think of the name. Anywho, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And Atlas Orthogonal, and I thought the results we were getting with AO were great, but I confess that... I really found doing line analysis on x-rays really boring. Um, <laughs> well, so, for yeah. people out there, you know, Donald is more, you're not like a super analytical personality, right? You're, you're kind of, yeah. we call it the dolphin uh, when we do our analysis, which yeah. is you kind of like to, you like to have fun and, and <laughs> yeah. you're, you're no, same as my personality. I'm not very analytical. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, you know, it was the same with Gunstead. Um, I love the adjusting in Gunstead. Uh, and I, I, I thought, you know, any man, Clarence Gonstead, if, you know, if people want to pick holes in chiropractic, there was a man with a vision. He started in a small town, Mount Horeb in, in Wisconsin, and then he moved to a bigger clinic. And then he went to a greenfield site and built a clinic, which was so big, he had to build a hotel to host the people who stayed there. And then he had to build an airport next to it where people could fly in for their adjustment. You know, there's a man with a vision and totally. <laughs> and this was before the days of the internet and mass advertising and people just found out through word of mouth. And if, and I would say this of all chiropractic critics, whether I'm vitalistic, mechanistic, MSK, NMSK, I don't know, <laughs> whatever I am, I hang my shingle up and I've hung my shingle up in a tiny little rural town in Scotland where word travels like wildfire and, you know, and if we were crap and, and if we were stinging people for, for money for the wrong reasons, I would have had to close down years ago, you know, instead without even at, we haven't even marketed or done a screening for about six years. We've got a waiting list practice, you know, so there must be something, even if I'm a dirty, rotten, vitalistic terrorist that, um, <laughs> Well, I I often say that to two two people too. A lot of times uh, practice members will come in and they'll be like, how come chiropractic has this negative stigma? And I said, well, you have to think about it is it started like 120 years ago with one guy, one guy's idea. 
it's grown to be the largest, well, we, we so far can sort of call it the, dr- the largest drug-free healthcare profession, even though we're trying to, you know, we're trying to get drugs in it, but it's the largest drug-free healthcare profession in the world. It never had support or advertising from uh, big drug companies. We had total backlash from the medical field and we totally had bad media around it the whole time. Yeah. And it's absolutely impossible for it to ever have grown unless the product was good. Because <laughs> there was nothing else to, that was positive about it. <laughs> well, the most extraordinary thing is um, actually on Thursday in my healthcare class, I had, I think I had patient number three finally come to a healthcare class nine years after arriving. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and when I, you know, despite everything we just talked about at Palmer, I, I left pretty rotten certainty. Um, I spent a whole year working as an intern in the rehab department. And I also, wrote some pretty good essays on philosophy at Palmer and, and was really into philosophy. But I didn't know when I opened my clinic how I was going to, you know, what I was going to do. And to be honest, I think like a lot of people, that first year I was in practice, I threw everything, including the kitchen sink at patients to see if they could get better and if I could fix their problem. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a big journey that I had to go through um, where I, everybody who came into my my space, I was trying to solve their problem for them. Mm-hmm. And that's been a major shift. Actually, the vitality shift's been really helpful with that. Although I think I'd probably made my big shift before that. Yeah. Um, just the major shift that, you know, all, all we can really do is take away interference and improve function in neurology. The patient has to get on and do it. Yeah. So getting back to my, my journey, I, I did SAT. And I did SAT pretty badly for about two or three years. And I would say it was a bit like playing the lottery. You know, when some people got better, some people got better. And because I was doing bad chiropractic in, in what I see chiropractic now, um, even the guys who didn't get better seemed to get something. So now you know, just, just expand on that a little bit though, just for like, because Bad chiropractic at the beginning wouldn't mean like you had a bad intention. Would it mean like, no, like how, how would you describe that? So I had masses of intention, but I was, I often found myself slightly led into ideas that let's just use, I'll use some SOT words and then I'll try and explain them. So basically SOT divides everybody into three boxes. You're either a category one, two or three. And, um, Certainly, Dijonet's dead. Gonstead's dead. You know, most of the great pioneers of chiropractic aren't here to explain their work now. So if, if in your interpretation of their work, you got a certain meaning, that's true to you at that time. Right. There was certainly a, a little bit, you know, and, and BJ's dead. And, and chiropractic moved from America to Europe. And, and when, you know, they set up their first college here in, in England, the first European college, it was set up by a group of people who had an interpretation of what BJ meant. It was set up with some, some decent principle, but you know, they thought, well, we're British. We're not going to do that or say that and use that nasty subluxation word and all that sort of stuff. So, <laughs> so they didn't do it. But what I mean by, I was under the impression from people who had, had taught me and they were under the impression that, everybody was either a category two or three and category ones were unicorns. So I'm going to say that intentionally and then I'll try and explain. Mm -hmm. 
I think what happens is that we all think in chiropractic, or many of us, even when we are trying to think vitalistically, that we're going to fix a problem. And category two is, 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 is a very clever part of SOT where it's one of the only parts of chiropractic where you're looking at putting together the body's instabilities rather than relieving fixation or, 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 or tightness. Increasing, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And <clears throat> I now believe that there is a significant relationship between the pelvis and the cranium. Um, otherwise, I, I wouldn't do what I do. But I, I certainly had this understanding that this was the case. And so I made sure that all of my patients fitted into what I wanted them to fit into. I didn't, in Gonstead's words, I, I never accepted the subluxation where I found it. Great. I, I found the subluxations I wanted to find. Yeah. If that you know what? That totally does make sense because I can't remember who I was talking to um, before. Maybe it was uh, Dr. Peter Kevorkian. But because sometimes we'll, you know, when we learn a technique as a student, we learn it like a recipe, like making cupcakes or yeah. something. <laughs> and so you just follow the recipe. And, and it's not until, and we talk about this a lot about the difference between knowledge and wisdom, until you apply that enough times to get feedback to realize that there are all different types of people. So that, because that, the reason Absolutely. I was asking you, about the about the bad chiropractic is is I've I've talked to many other people on the podcast and and when they think it's it's just that it's it's kind of doesn't have the soul or the wisdom behind it it just has absolute ingredients yeah yeah I hope people don't analyze my words too tightly on that one um, no people got better you know patient point. number three patient number three is still coming you know patient number 100%. one um, so but she was just saying that. Nine years after starting her chiropractic journey with me, she now gets a whole different effect out of the chiropractic. Back when when we both started, I think we were both looking at pain as a as a measure of our, our levels of, of success. And I'll be honest, I say to all my patients, and, I, and I'm really honest about this, I say, the only reason I care about your pain is because you do. Otherwise, I have n nothing. You can tell me where it hurts. You can tell me it hurts a lot. And I truly care because I love you deeply and I don't want you to be sore. Yeah. But honestly, the, the main reason I care about your pain is because you do. And actually, there's some great research coming out of the New Zealand research school, um, Kelly Holt and Heidi Horvick, yeah. saying the, you know, the only place we feel pain is in our brain. You know, if you stand on a drawing pen, it hurts like hell. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, your foot your foot has a searing sharp intense pain but actually that's only nociceptors being provoked by this you know this obnoxious piece of metal that's sticking into your foot the, the actual you know interpretation of the pain is in your brain right so um so anyway long evolution uh, and I, i'll tell you another thing about my technique evolution is i had to be adjusted a few times very badly by other chiropractors before <laughs> I realized what I was doing to some patients because uh, I, I ended up through the best world in the world being adjusted into really poor health. Mm -hmm. And um, Martin Harvey's going to kill me for that. I'm um, actually, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I, one day I met another chiropractor who really inspired me and said, you are not a B or C let's try and adjust you this way. And almost instantly my health improved and it opened a new door for me. And from that day forwards, I've actually looked on everybody with an SOT, and I'm going to use an SOT world as being a category one default, and then everybody else 
being a temporarily some, somewhere else. So I look on everybody as having a dural talk. And can I caveat, just about every chiropractor I've ever met in the world certainly has a solution. Many people think they have the solution. I mean, BJ thought he had the solution. Gonstead thought he had the solution. Dijonet, Nimmo, um, everybody's got the solution. Yeah. And anyway, one of the things that's really shifted me significantly in the last couple of years, and we talked about it last time I was on the podcast and the last couple of times I've met, is this patient, I, this, I've gone down the road of, of motor neuron disease or Lou Gehrig's or ALS. Yep. And MS. Now, as we discussed last time, Don, and I don't want to retrain that, I'm not treating MS, yep. I'm not treating yep. MND, I'm not treating Parkinson's. But because I have an interest just looking towards these incurables and looking yep. for how we can help them, I really enjoy it. Because I enjoy it, I, I attract more people in that space. And right. because you attract more people in that space, I've worked out that we actually can have a huge difference in their lives, even if they're still going to die. And exactly half my ALS MND patients have died in the last year. Bloody traumatic, I tell you. You know, it's not, it's not a group of patients I would look for if, if that's something you're going to struggle with, yeah. with dealing. Yeah. But um, I really enjoyed it. And I think what pr probably provoked you to ask me back on the podcast was I, I told the story of Andrea. It's not, not, it's not a real name, just to protect her. Yeah, yeah, but she's the most amazing human being, and it's really brought what we can do in chiropractic to such a sort of sharp point in my life. Through Facebook, uh, we had an interview with quite a famous uh, person up here in Scotland called Doddy Weir, who's got motor neuron disease, and he's been in the journey now three years, and he's still driving, and he's still achieving almost everything that he wants to, and he credits that all with chiropractic. Mm -hmm. So just to, you know, I can whiz around all over the place, but the only medication for motor neuron disease or ALS is something called mm, Liprazole or something like that. And it, it's a, one of those long unpronounceable names and it only has efficacy for three months extended life. Well, I would say with him and almost every other MND patient I've had that we've done more than three months and this drug costs something like 20,000 a year. You know, and wow. even if I was adjusting these guys twice a week, that's about 4,000 a year. So, you know, I think chiropractic is potentially a really good solution, not to treat MND. That's absolutely, I'll repeat that, we're not treating MND, we're not treating MS, but yeah. all of these patients are noticing such significant improvements that there has to be something there. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, back to, so Dottie put a lovely thing on Facebook for me, and it was viewed about 140,000 times. You know, I was having messages from New Zealand and Australia and America, people trying to get hold of me because when you're dying with this horrible disease that locks you in, you basically die from the inside. You can feel and see everything, but you can't do anything about it. They become absolute internet fanatics. Um, they know more about the disease and, and everything than anybody else. Any doctor could tell them within months because they've spent so much time studying it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Ange found me. Andrea found me and um, came up about three hours drive each way. So long way. And in walked this tiny girl. She must have been by then about 100 pounds. Nothing of her legs, completely atrophied away. She had was, she, was she in a wheelchair at that point? Oh, completely. Oh, yeah. Okay. She's, been, yeah. she's been in a wheelchair for, well, 
up till last November, she'd been in a wheelchair for 61 months without taking a single step. But we'll come back to that because that's the most exciting bit of the whole story. Great. She is 41. So she turned 41 in, in January. So she was 40 when she came. Really beautiful, vivacious mum of two. And she contracted multiple sclerosis on, around, on or around her 30th birthday. Mm-hmm. By 35-ish, she was still ambulatory. She was still driving. And she was still in charge of her own life, basically. Yeah. But she was getting progressively more painful, very painful, in her low back and sciatica. And it wasn't a disc. I promise you, they were, she was MRI. There were no disc bulges and she had raging sciatica. And I think it was something dural or meningeal, which we can talk about later. But anyway, yeah. so she was put into hospital against her will and put under massive doses of pain medication. And she was in hospital in a supine position for six weeks until she released herself because the pain wasn't going away and her life was. And she never walked again. And she left hospital into a full-time care package um, where she still stays in her own house and she's still a mother. I mean, amazing human being, but two kids. And basically carers would come in about four times a day. They'd wake her up, help her with all her toiletry habits come in at about lunchtime, cook a meal, come in in the evening, cook a meal. And then at nine o'clock, they would put her to bed. And every single night of her life, she was in agony. They would put her to bed and she couldn't move. She would lie in that position until they came and picked her up in the morning. And she was on more of the, you know, more of those really strong painkillers than you could ever imagine. Yeah. Anyway, we adjusted her for the first time and she had no quality of life. I mean, well, she had quality of life. She had children and stuff like that. So she came in on an electric wheelchair. Her right hand has a little bit more movement than the left. And that's where the joystick is. Mm-hmm. And she was punched over, completely in flexion, unable to sit up straight. And we picked her up and put her on the adjusting table. Very little function in her right leg at all. Little bit of flexion in her left leg. Very little extension. We adjusted her and she, we sat there afterwards and she instantly felt like a significant amount of pain had gone. Now, please Everybody don't judge me. It was predominantly a cranial adjustment I did on the first adjustment with a little bit of a pelvic detalk. Everybody does it their own way. I just did it my way. And Don't worry. I, I, my, my caveat is to all the listeners out there to not be judgmental. There you go. <laughs> I, think it's the, I think judgment is the biggest subluxation in chiropractic. Everyone's yeah. got an answer. Yeah. And you can judge anybody, but it'll do you no good. You can judge me. I can judge you. The more I judge you, the less good it does me. It just reflects on my inadequacies. Anywho. Right. So don't worry about it. <laughs> I, picked, I picked her up and I sat next to her and she did not have enough strength in her body to hold herself up in a sitting position without a backrest. Mm-hmm. And we talked with her, literally my arm around her, holding her up about what we could expect. And I said, you know, I have nothing. The only thing I promise anybody who ever comes into my adjusting room is that you'll be better if I adjust you than you will be if I don't. It's the only thing I can promise. I can't promise you your pain's going to go away. I can't promise you you're going to you're going to be able to walk. I can't promise you you're going to be able to do anything. All I can promise is that you'll be better if I adjust you than you will if you won't. And she said that's good enough for me. And she was able to come. I think about once a week for about six or eight weeks, but. She had to beg, borrow, and steal transport. And, you know, it was a seven-hour round trip for her. Wow. 
But within about three weeks, she said, you know, I just can't believe it. My pain levels are amazing. And despite the fact that she could now sit up straight, what really had, had started her off was her pain levels. They had gone down dramatically. Within about another three weeks, she was actually able to transfer from her bed to a wheelchair. Now, if you can imagine, age 39, 40, you get put to bed in a diaper at 9 p.m. in a single position. And some, some little short, fat foreigner turns up, wrangles your neck and your, and your back a few times. And six weeks later, you're actually able to transfer and move yourself in your bed, roll over in your bed and transfer to a wheelchair to be able to now imagine a 40-year-old you know, woman, the things that you can now do for yourself that you weren't able to do before. That's I mean, that's just massive. And that was just the beginning. And then about, so I guess it was about May we met her. Then about November, yeah, I'm going I'm to tell you exactly what date it was because I spoke at the McTimony conference the previous Saturday. So it'd be about November the 26th. Mm-hmm. She comes in, she's sitting bolt upright, straight, smile on her face, like some, you know, just, wow, massive. And she comes in and she said, um, I said, how are you? She said, you're going to have to watch this before I move. And she got out her phone and she said, and she showed me, and it's a video. I'll share it with you privately, but it's not for the world. And it's a video of her walking across her kitchen. And wow. she said, I've been feeling so great that I said to my carer, would you just film something for me? Because I have this feeling that I'm going to be able to walk. And it's about 12 steps on these tiny little atrophied legs, nothing. Wow. And she walked across the, fr- the floor and, and that was 61 months after she'd previously walked about five months of chiropractic. And, and that's not the only, I mean, I've got a whole host of MS patients now, Mm -hmm. but that's the most striking one. Mm -hmm. And she's now got a job. So she was a hairdresser. She's now working on the reception and her hairdressing salon, still mostly in a wheelchair. Okay. Let's get this right. Right. She's got MS. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I think and that's what we talk about. We talk about the life model of chiropractic care is we're, we're, we're improving the expression of life. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And, you know, the, the motor neuron guy, Dottie, you know, he just says to me, after he's adjusted, he feels completely amazing. Um, and his, his, his MND is descending. So it's his neck and his shoulders and his arms that are the problem. You know, he, can, he still did a 40-mile bike ride about six months ago because his legs are fine. Yeah. Um, or they, they're still pretty good anyway. And, you know, he says, when after I'm adjusted, I breathe like I've got lungs that work free and I can, I can move my hands better and I can hold my head up more easily. It's not, and I do, I do genuinely believe that we have increased his quality of, and length of life. So he set me up with a, a, a medical neurologist, a real doctor, a real doctor. Imagine that. A fancy doctor. <laughs> so I turned up, I put a tie and a suit on and I, and I, you know, I made sure that I didn't look like some long head hippie. I was going to try and convert him to the, to the next sort of vitalistic spiritual gang of magic fairy dust. The weird, <laughs> the, the fringe vitalist. <laughs> yeah. That, that sort of lunatic fringe. Yeah. No, you're right. And I went to talk to the guy and I'm going to tell everybody, I'm going to tell the listeners what I told him. Firstly, 
whatever model of chiropractic you do now, and somebody with MS or MND comes into your life, don't change anything. Just do what you do with the intention you do it. And I promise you, you're doing more than anybody else in the whole world because there are nobody doing anything for these people that are having any effect at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you're flying seven, you know, three times up one way and three times down the other, that's fine. Just do it because I promise you at least half of them are going to be right. Okay. <laughs> but my point is do it with intention, do it with love. And the chances are you're going to make a really big difference to that person's life. Mm-hmm. But where I think SOT specifically is having a big difference, and I'm going to use this as a segue to go into something where I think I'm, it's a new direction of chiropractic, so open to all sorts of, of judgment, but you know, we'll, we'll throw it out there and we'll see what comes back. With SOT, what you're really looking for is to move membranes. The membrane you're specifically interested in is dura or the dura mater, the tough outer layer of meninges. Yes. And the second thing that you're really trying to do is stimulate cerebrospinal fluid. Now, mm-hmm. last October, I qualified as a craniopath, and which is the top level, I suppose, in the SOT world. Mm-hmm. And in order to get that qualification, I, I set a pretty horrible exam. And I spent nine months solidly studying craniopathy. But you can't study the head unless you study the whole body too and what, you know, what you're doing in that process of studying, you obviously try different things because you're trying what you're studying. And I got different results by trying different things. So this led led me to believe that actually chiropractic is a profession and the same adjustment doesn't work for everybody in the same way. I promise you, or, you know, if you're going to adjust Atlas in a Gonstead or diversified style, it's going to have a very different effect than if you do it in, in Nuka or toggle recoil or atlas orthogonal. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the second thing about CSF, cerebrospinal fluid, I think without CSF, you have very little trophism within the arachnoid space. So this is quite a technical discussion, but we have three layers of the meninges, the pia mater, which is like cling film or saran wrap that, that invaginates everything on the central nervous system. Yeah. We then have the dura mater, which is pretty hard, stuck to the cranial vault, the foramen magnum, and then in many spaces up and down the spine. And between those two, you have the arachnoid space, which is called arachnoid because it has lots of very fine fibers or spider's webs that connect the pier and the dura mater. And in that space flows CSF, round about 175 millimeters at a time. It's produced right in the middle of the brain and the ventricles, and it comes out of the base of the spine in the foramen of Lushka and Magendi, respectively. Then travels all the way down to your backside and then all the way back in a helical motion. And in order for that to happen, and if, our, if we cranial chiropractors or osteopaths are right, the cranial vault has to expand and contract slightly to allow that volume change. And right. when I say slightly, completely unmeasured scientifically at this yeah. state, yeah. but I can put my hands now so I can feel a head now in the same way some people can feel the spine as well, if that makes sense. So I can feel instantly where parts of the skull are locked up. Yes. There's 33 bones and they articulate not like, a, not, not like your elbow. They articulate more like a massive bridge that has to 
pitch and yaw and the weather and the hot and the cold. Right. They expand, the sutures expand and contract, open and close slightly. They do not move of their own volition as far as we know. Anyway, everybody I've discovered so far with multiple sclerosis and MND either has a significant cranial lesion, i.e. locking the cranial vault tight like a concussion or a birth injury or something whereby those sutures aren't moving, or they have a pelvic lesion, a straightforward SI joint fixation that is allowing, because if the sacrum doesn't move, then CSF doesn't flow up and down the spinal cord either. Right. And what you end up with is CSF stasis. Now, CSF stasis, if you're ever walking through the jungle and you see a stagnant pool with flies all sitting across the top, you don't drink from it. But you see running water and the chances are you will because it's being refreshed. Now, CSF itself doesn't carry oxygen like blood does. The brain and central nervous system use so much oxygen, I think about 30 or 40% of your, of your daily supply, that the CSF itself couldn't do that. But it, the, the exchange, because of the blood-brain barrier and other things, happens quite a lot within um, that, that arachnoid space. And if that CSF is not refreshed, then you don't have osmotic gradients and you don't have diffusion gradients. And CSF must be important because we replace it six times a day. I mean, we absolutely completely replace it. Whereas a red blood cell has got a, a life expectancy of 120 days. Right. Now, a lot of these guys, the first time you adjust them, they actually say that it's suddenly like they, they, when you've stimulated cerebrospinal fluid flow around their whole central nervous system, it actually wakes up like they've been asleep for a year, you know, and they feel suddenly like you've been holding their head under the water and suddenly they can breathe. Oxygen's getting through and it's a real awakening. Mm -hmm. So Dottie, this big rugby player, opposability, which makes humans human, the thumb and the little finger. Yep. When I first was doing my assessment, he had no opposability in his thumbs at all. All I did was a cranial adjustment specifically as is taught by a, cranio, a craniopath, nothing to do with SOT, separate, cranial adjustment called craniofacial dynamics. I detalked him. I just changed, it changes a whole ton of neurology. In fact, that's the adjustment I gave you when you were in London and Brandy as well. Remember that one? That was, and yeah. Kelty were and hi Kelty. <laughs> you know, it's just funny when you go into, you, you go and say, I'm going to adjust you and then you pull out the rubber glove. It's always good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least we use protection. Yeah, um, totally. <laughs> sorry, this is going to become an X-rated. Anyway, <laughs> I adjusted his cranium, and he immediately had opposability. His thumb and his little finger not only could touch each other, but they could resist my attempts at pulling them apart. And there was a there was a whole raft of other things. So, mm -hmm. stimulating cerebrospinal fluid, I think, is vital because MND or ALS for our American cousins and MS are diseases de facto of the central nervous system. In effect, the central nervous system is slowly uh, eating itself away. It's calcifying, a bit like um, you know, tendons are getting calcification. It's, you know, it's right. getting... When you stimulate CSF, what you're actually doing is allowing trophism. You're allowing the central nervous system a much better chance of feeding and repairing itself. And I think... You know, Dottie is still driving three years after contracting motor neuron disease. He is not the same person, I promise you. It's not like some yeah. magic fairy has touched him with a wand. But right. every I adjust him twice a week, Monday evenings and Friday mornings. 
when he's in town and every single day he leaves, he says, I can drive better. I can, I can sit up better. I can feed myself better. I can breathe better. And Andrea, when she comes in to be adjusted, when she leaves, her pain improves, her ability to use her hands improves, her ability to transfer from the car to a wheelchair, wheelchair to bed improves. But so, so many things in Andrea's life. There's a girl called Viv who comes in. They said, my head's clear. I can hold my head up. I use my stick less. In fact, when I walk in the house after an adjustment, I leave my stick at the door and I walk around, you know, after I've been adjusted. But as she comes towards her next adjustment, she yeah. finds the stick comes more in her, you know, and she's, yeah. I would honestly give it to them, but I, you know, I can't afford to give some 10% of my clinic away. I do give a ton of chiropractic away like most chiropractors do, but I only do it to people that I think, you know, really are attempting to, to, to get them. Anyway, it's been a real journey that, and I'm using very much SOT principles with some other cranial. And because I've been working with so many people with such bad neurological problems, and I don't come from a background of carrot neurology, but do you remember Mr. Llewellyn at Palmer, that lovely guy yeah. from Idaho? For CNS. 7.30, CNS. 7.30 <laughs> every morning for your first trimester. Yeah, I remember that. Well, I, I actually reread his textbook, his, his book, when I was studying for my cranial exam, and it's, it's brilliant. You know, it's absolutely brilliant. Really simple, good neurology. And it, it just sort of struck me. So this is my hypothesis. So I welcome all sorts of feedback on this. If you move your hand from anywhere out there in space, your brain must have a frame of reference about where your body is. So you talk about Mittelmeier's test or the turn test or Romberg's. Yeah. Your brain must have an understanding from your proprioceptors where your body is in time and space. Right. And it right. must relate that information it receives to something. So if we think about a good old mathematical graph, we've got an X, a Y um, axis and a Z, a Z axis. We yeah. could give ourselves a coordinate, you know, three, two, three. And if you follow those coordinates, you should end up at exactly the same place. Right. As long as you know where zero is. And what I think happens is in our central nervous system is I think our brain loses its intent interpretation of where zero is. It understands where all the movements are because it's getting a feedback system from your proprioceptors. And there's usually not much wrong with them unless you've had an injury. Mm -hmm. But what's happening is through the subluxation process is the information is being adulterated between the transmission and the receiver. And so slowly over a, a period of time, your brain is, is making some pretty good decisions, but based on crap information about where your body is in time and space. So certainly the one aspect of, the, of an adjustment is a control alt delete reset of that resetting your brain's understanding of zero. Mm -hmm. Now this led me to another thought. How does your brain, what does your brain lose as zero? What does your brain use as locus? Now, I promise you that every single human being on the planet or everyone that I've ever seen, so it's only about three or 4,000. That's not every, I mean, that's a reasonable <laughs> sample, I think. Um, it's not everybody, but it's a reasonable sample in Southern Scotland, yeah. uh, Northern England, okay? Ends up with a talk. In effect, put into Gonstead words, you're going to have a PI ilium and an AS ilium. Right. Predictably, I would say, more often than not, 
it's going to be a PI on the left and an AS on the right. And I have another, I have a reason for that, but it's again open for more. But a PI on the left and the AS, more often than not, there mm-hmm. are there are PIs on the right. I get it. Yeah. But more often than not, you can have a PI AS. This is in effect a category one. And what I think we're doing is is we're adjusting where the brain thinks the body is. So you go into a, a counter-rotative subluxation. Now, why would you do that? Something's got to pull you, pull you there. And what is the, the subluxation? You know, how can a how can your iliac, your sacroiliac joint, which actually has no muscles that cross the joint at all, subluxate? I mean, how how can it subluxate? What is what is holding them in that space? And that leads me to my sort of final big, and I think it's fascia. Fascia is so important. And I think if I think we chiropractors really need to look at fascia much more as a neurosensory system rather than just a connective tissue. Because I think, well, a lot of the work I've done is measuring subjectively, you know, using finger pressure and stuff, different fascial spaces, doing an adjustment and seeing that fascia change. And that fascia is the, is the appropriate, you know, it, we, it, it's not just a white connective tissue that holds the body together, but it is ubiquitous. And I think it is filled with literally hundreds of billions of, of mechanoreceptors, stretch receptors, um, Golgi's, Ruffini's, Pekinian, all those things. Yeah. And I think, I think the, the world is only really just waking up to how clever uh, and important fascia is. Mm-hmm. So, Anyway, that's just a sort of sample of of where my brain's been going. But we are getting some amazing results now, which I don't think I would have got three or four years ago for several reasons. One is my certainty. The fact that people are coming and saying, you know, I've got motor neuron disease or I've got Parkinson's or I've got ALS or MND. Well, somebody came to me last week with something I'd never heard about because they, they just couldn't put them in a box called myositis. Anyway, um, maybe I didn't study hard enough in path class and primary. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the only thing we can say to them is that you're going to be better than if we didn't adjust you. And every single person, even the three for MND patients who've died over the last eight months have been considerably better than, than they were before the adjustment. Right. Considerably better. Mm-hmm. Um, the three that have died actually came really, really quite far down their journey. Like kind of late they came Very in the process. Late. Yeah. Well, I think you can help any tissue that's alive get better than it is. That doesn't mean you can help it heal, right? But you can. You can't bring the dead back to life. So if if a yeah. neuron is dead, it's dead. You know, right. it's dead. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and if it, and if us vitalistics really were throwing around pixie dust, surely we could do that. <laughs> yeah, totally. You think at least we'd have the power to bring back the dead? <laughs> dead yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So you know. Very done. I, I, yeah. I, I talk, I talk for Britain. So you better throw in a question here. No, no, that's great. I just, I just wanted to like, you've been doing some seminars around in the UK. Can you just tell, tell listeners, we've got a couple minutes left here, but just 
I wanted you to let uh, the listeners know a little bit about some of the seminars that you've been doing to help chiropractors with, uh, you know, just adding some extra tools into their technique tool belt. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. So this, the, my, the seminars that I do are called mastering the adjustment of complex segments. Um, I had to come up with a title and through much soul searching, that was the title I came up with. But what I want to do in an eight hour seminar is equip people with the mental, so mental and physical ability to assess and adjust somebody with confidence. And I chose complex segments. So I have a little routine for assessing things such as acute discs or severe DJD, because those are areas where we get attacked a lot in, in, you know, in the courts and the areas that cause a lot of chiropractors to refer out when really we're the solution. We are, we really are the solution. Right. And they used to say, cause my background was a soul was, was as a soldier. There was this complete bollock saying that if we trained hard, we would fight easy. And um, it was absolute <laughs> nonsense. So we trained, <laughs> we trained, we trained hard and we fought harder, but had we trained easy, the fighting would have been impossible. So, the theory is if, if we teach people how to adjust, firstly find with confidence yeah. and adjust with confidence the most complicated segments that you're likely to find, then the easy ones are just easy. Why, you know, you don't even have to bother learning how to do those because yeah. you've learned how to do the hard ones. Right. And I have met a lot of really great young chiropractors who have been completely terrified by their instructors at university into being chiropractors. And I think that is just horrendous. They're graduating, being scared to adjust, yeah. avoiding the neck at all costs. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it, you know, my early days in practice, probably I probably shied away from some really complicated things, very worried about having my name hauled in front of the General Chiropractic Council, which is our governing body or legal body here. But actually now, I would say if somebody came in with a raging acute disc, I, I would have a tilt at adjusting them even without an MRI because I'm really confident that my very gentle technique. Yeah. So I'll describe, you play golf a little bit, don't you? Oh, yeah. yeah. So the first time when you're learning and you're a teenager or a young man and you, you, swing your, you swing your bat, you swing your club, sorry, for the first time and you can see 150 meters down the fairway and you get your club and you swing it back around and you can see that ball and you know you're going to knock not only the skin off this ball, but both the skin and the ball are going to land 200 meters down the fairway. And as you swing, it barely passes the ladies' tee. Right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and now that you've been a chiropractor for 20 years, I will bet the amount of force you use on your adjustment is a fraction of what you did when you were in Palmer Student Clinic. Huge, huge. If we, if we learn, and it's not that difficult to gain that finesse, what we actually do is to have confidence and not, and not fanny, I'm going to put this word in parenthesis, and not fanny the adjustment, you know, not sort of half-ass it. Actually, you know, take the adjustment with the appropriate amount of force, adjust the correct segment. Mm -hmm. Actually, Didi said, I think, I love those epigrams that were all over the walls of Palmer. Um, Without, if we are nothing, if, without specificity, we are nothing. I think something like that. Right. Yeah. You know, if you if the if the subluxation is L five and you adjust L three, yeah. Well, 
<laughs> you're gonna you're gonna excite some neurons, but <laughs> you're not taking away the interference. 100%. So this, the seminars that we're trying to run is really, and they're both of them. The, the, my next one is almost sold out. I think there's about four or five spaces. But I've aimed them at the chiropractor, the student, or the chiropractor in his first five years, or anybody who wants to do a one-day technique slash practice management. Because I don't divide practice management away from technique. If I'm going to teach you how to adjust, I'm going to teach you how to communicate that adjustment to a patient that makes them understand, A, what they can expect from it, and, and B, how long it's going to take, you know, totally. for their care, body to Care heal. planning and care planning together, right? Care planning. Now, that is a massive subluxation in British chiropractic. I'm sure in, in Canadian ones too. They're absolutely horrified about the care plan. In fact, you know, they, they use examples of, of care planning to, to sort of constantly beat us vitalistic chiropractors down and saying, you know, we must be mis-selling chiropractic if we're getting people to buy, you know, to buy care in excess of three, you know, three or four adjustments at a time. Mm-hmm. But I'll just throw it out there. If you sell chiropractic, the adjustment by adjustment by adjustment, they're wondering after which adjustment they're going to be cured. Right. And, and no matter how you, and there's one more thing I'd like everybody in the whole chiropractic world to think about is think about this one question. What is unique about chiropractic? What is unique about chiropractic? And if your answer is nothing, then we're screwed because <laughs> my, my mate who's a physio, he can do a pretty good, what he calls a grade two manipulation. Pretty good. Different intention, yeah. not too bad. He can adjust the neck. He doesn't call it. He calls it a manip. He a manip. A manip. <laughs> he can do the neck. He can do the lumbar spine. He doesn't do it with the same intention for the same reasons, but he has a go at it. Mm-hmm. Whereas my chiropractic friend up the road, and she's a lovely chiropractor. We just see things differently. Yeah. All of her uh, marketing, all of her website, everything has machines doing ultrasound and stim and acupuncture needles. Mm. Now, she's going head-to-head with a physiotherapist. Right. So I'm not going to give you the answer, but everybody in the world, think about this. What is unique about chiropractic? Because if your answer is nothing, then we are screwed. If the only thing we have is that we're not medical doctors, and one of the British associations has just brought prescription rights back on the table again, yeah, then we're, then we're really... And I think subluxation, nervous interference, adjustment philosophy, that's our, that's our, our differentiation. Our different, and Fred Barge said, you know, without our philosophy, we are nothing. You know, we'll just head out on the crimson path to oblivion. No, no. Well, Donald, our time has come. Um, I want to thank you again for sharing your uh, pearls of wisdom on, on your journey through technique and, and, show, and sharing some of your uh, cool stories. So thanks so much for being on the podcast again. Thanks, Don. Listen, everybody, please just go and adjust. And every single patient in the world will be better if you adjust them than if you didn't, which means that we, there is no shortage of new patients anywhere. Everybody you meet is a new patient potentially. Yes. So uh, everybody out there, just remember, if you adjust everyone, they will be better. And don't forget to crush the curse. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you receive value from this episode, please take some time to rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. If you know a fellow chiropractor that could benefit from this message, please share it with them. 
Because it's my goal to provide you with great content, please contact me if you have any questions at drdonmcdonald.com or find me on Facebook. I look forward to hearing from you. So until next time, Dr. Don out.